Hello, everyone, and welcome to Old Testament in Faith, part of the In Faith series of podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're finishing Genesis as we gloss through chapters 46 through 50. It's a scattering of events, but with plenty of little nuggets here and there, so let's go mining. Well, here we are, the last episode of season two, somewhat misnamed Old Testament in Faith since we've only made it through the book of Genesis, but I've had I've had a time doing this. It's been a good time. Plenty of challenges, certainly, trying to do this many of the weeks, especially those of you who have been staying current with it and seeing the, the gaps between episodes sometimes. Sometimes that was schedule-related. Sometimes it was just really struggling to make sure I was doing the chapter and the topic justice. I did want to mention that we're going to return to Joseph in Topics in Faith, particularly the the part of it we covered mostly last week and a little bit the week before, because I kind of went through it a little bit quickly and I was focusing on the forgiveness aspect of those chapters. And there's kind of more to his story or there's parts of his stories that I think would be beneficial to really dive into. And it was actually the topic of this past week's sermon at our church, things that pastor talked about that kind of recalled to mind and recalled to my mind some of the things that were talked about in the Joseph story in a way to kind of link what he was talking about with what was happening there in a potentially very powerful way. And I think it's really important that we return to that. So we're going to do that probably pretty early. It might be the introduction to the season next week that I mentioned, and then the very next one after that, we might might be right back in the story of Joseph for a moment. But for now, we are going to continue with Genesis 46. As I said, we're kind of going to same MO as the past couple episodes where we're going to go through these chapters a little bit quickly. This one, there is going to be just a little, little kind of something to think about out of each chapter. No real overarching theme like we've been able to pull out of some of these, but just some things to kind of think about and meditate over for each chapter. So Genesis 46, remember we ended with Joseph revealing himself to his brothers, that he was the the brother they sold into Egypt, but that he had forgiven them because it was actually all according to God's plan that he be there in order to save many people. So now Jacob comes to Egypt, so he sent the brothers back to go get his father and the rest of the family and bring them all to Egypt to stay so that they would be able to survive the famine because he knew there were several more years coming of it. And so on the way there, again, God meets with Jacob and promises his blessing once again. Then we have a genealogy listing all of the family members, all the descendants, all the children and grandchildren of Jacob who all went to Egypt and then Jacob arrives, Joseph meets with him, they are reunited, and it's this you know great moment, of course, as it would be. But again, interesting to think about and compare. So think about the fact that when the brothers first brought Joseph's coat to Jacob, Jacob assumed that Joseph was dead and mourned for him as though he were dead, bereft of his favorite son at that point, the, f- the firstborn son of his favorite wife, Rachel, or his preferred wife even, um, you recall that she was the one that he actually wanted, but then through all the mess of that, he ended up fathering children through four different women. Only one, Rachel only had two of the sons. But think about the fact that it was because he didn't believe the dreams that Joseph had. 
Because if he believed that Joseph had the dreams he had in it and that those dreams meant what Joseph believed or was told by God that they meant, then he would know Joseph cannot be dead if we have not yet bowed down to him. And so we can compare that to Abraham. If you remember way, way back when we talked about Abraham and when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, as we went through those verses, it never felt like Abraham truly believed he was going to sacrifice his son. Or at the very least, if he did end up killing his son and burning him on the altar, that God could raise Isaac from the dead. We went into the New Testament to see the verse there that, that indicated that, that you know Abraham believed God well enough that even if he did kill his son as a sacrifice on the altar, that God would be able to resurrect him. So Abraham, the New Testament passage says, he did, in essence, receive him back from the dead. So Jacob as well received Joseph back from the dead, but without the faith in the promise that Joseph had. So for him, it was a complete surprise. And so a blessing in its way, but only after spending how much time feeling bereft for his son. And we too, when we don't have the faith that God's promises will come true, when it seems like our dreams have been shattered and destroyed and buried, we can spend a lot of useless time mourning that which we thought had died. But if we believe God and his promise, we would only spend it in eager anticipation for the resurrection of that dream. In Genesis 47, we have a couple interesting stories where Joseph brings five of his brothers and then later Jacob to meet Pharaoh. And he tells them to tell Pharaoh that Jacob and his sons are shepherds because the Egyptians don't think highly <laughs> of shepherds. So it's a way to kind of keep them you know, left alone. And so Joseph, it seems, wants to keep his father and brothers separate from the Egyptians. There's no real indication of why, perhaps, in the time he spent with the Egyptians and spent, as we mentioned last time, kind of assimilating some of their culture and probably dress and grooming codes. Maybe he saw things there that he knew his brothers and the rest of their descendants and the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob should not intermingle too much with the Egyptians and so set up this sort of unequal relationship between the two so that the Egyptians would not want to intermarry necessarily with Jacob's sons, and perhaps they would not either. But then we see this, again, interesting series of events where the following year, so people have been coming and buying the grain from Joseph uh, that has been stored up. They come this next year, and they don't have anything left to buy with. And so Joseph says, well, if you sell me your livestock, then you can have grain for this year. And then the next year, they essentially sell their land and themselves as slaves to Pharaoh. And so all of Egypt, except for the priests, the priests are given a allotment of food from Pharaoh's stores already. So they have no need to buy it. The rest of the Egyptians do have to, to buy it. And so in order to do that, they sell themselves, their land, their livestock, like everything they own, essentially sign it over to Pharaoh, make it his property in order to have grain. So imagine this that for the first seven years, when there was plenty, when there was excess of grain, they were required to give a fifth of their crops to Pharaoh, according to Joseph's plan with the wisdom he had been given by God to do this. So they were taxed a fifth of their grain income, essentially, for storage. And then they had to purchase it back, purchase back the grain that was theirs that they gave up 
And because this seemed like a new idea, presumably they were not normally taxed their grain, or if they were, it wasn't a fifth, because then that would have been happening anyway. But so so they were introduced this new tax of a fifth of their crops, which they were then required to purchase back to the extent that they sold their own selves, all their livestock, all their land to Pharaoh. And then because of that, the fifth of grain or fifth of the crops was after that forever owed to Pharaoh because it was his land that they were farming, essentially. Imagine that, and in a way it does sometimes, happening today. Imagine if the government came to the people of the United States and said, listen, we have this prophecy that the next X number of years is going to be a booming economy. And so we're going to increase your taxes or decrease them for people that maybe already pay more than that. But we're going to institute this new form of tax so that at the end of that seven years, when you need stuff, you can purchase it back. Stuff that had been yours, (laughs) but now because we took it and claimed it as ours, you have to buy it back. I can't imagine that going over very well, but we won't get too political here. But it was just, it was interesting to me. It never occurred to me the number of times I've read through this. that like, wait a second, they were buying back their own grain that they had been told to give up. To Pharaoh. So anyway, I thought that was that was interesting. Genesis 48. We have some mixed up blessings. Joseph learns that his father is dying, and so he brings his sons that were born to him in Egypt to Jacob to bless. And Jacob lets him know that that these two sons are essentially going to take over Joseph's um, inheritance, that they will be considered full heirs with the other eleven brothers. And then that everyone born to Ephraim and Manasseh will be attributed to them. So when Joseph brings them forward for Jacob to place his hands on their heads and bless them, he brings them over so that if Jacob just reaches out his arms and puts his hands on the brothers' heads, the right hand will fall on the elder, who will then receive the the larger portion of the blessing, and his left hand will fall on the younger, who will receive a lesser portion. Jacob seemingly randomly decides to cross his arms so that his left hand falls on the older and his right hand falls on the younger. And then in the course of his blessing them, he ends up giving the larger blessing to the younger. Which is interesting for us to remember that the same thing basically happened with Jacob and Esau, where Jacob took the greater blessing from Esau. And when we look throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and in partially into the New as well, we can see that God often shows no favoritism to birth order. There's a lot of effort these days, a lot of discussion you can find on birth order. And there are definitely some some psychological things that happen that can be attributed to the common experience of parents as they try to raise their first child and then their second then potentially third and onward. So there are things that, that sort of happen and personalities that tend to belong more so to the eldest and to the middle and to the youngest and so on. But beyond that, even though much of the Old Testament and much of that culture gives the advantage to the eldest as the first heir and always like the first son born to a family is seen as the greatest blessing. But God doesn't often show that same favoritism. So even if he allowed that, even if he said to give kind of the, the greater blessing to the eldest, he he doesn't often do that. And we see that with Jacob and Esau, with Joseph. So with Joseph, because he was the 11th son born to Jacob, and yet he was the favorite with Ephraim, as we just looked at, and with Judah, as we'll see in a little bit. So 
So even though Joseph was like the favorite because he was the firstborn of Rachel, Judah was kind of in the in the middle of the mix, if you look at it chronologically, but ends up with the firstborn privileges. As I said, we'll, we'll look at that later on. We don't see that with David. He was not the oldest of Jesse's sons. He wasn't the oldest and wasn't the strongest, but he was made king over Israel. And then Solomon after him. Solomon was not David's firstborn, and there were others who were older than him, but he was the oldest surviving son of Bathsheba, and he was raised to kingship. So it is an early lesson for us not to judge or favor people based on our own perceptions of the way maybe our culture is set up to automatically favor, but to see through God's eyes. Then Genesis 49, we have Jacob blessing all of his sons. So he kind of runs through and prophesies their blessing and what their personalities are and what their offspring will be like among the 12 tribes. And so here we see, as we mentioned in previous episodes, that Reuben, though he was the firstborn because he went in and slept with Bilhah, that he is removed from firstborn status. We see this in Verses 3 and 4 of this chapter, it says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. And then skipping ahead to verses 8 through 12, we see Judah's preeminence. It says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Interesting that God promised that to Joseph and Jacob is now promising it to Judah instead. Verse 9, you are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. You see throughout the Old Testament into the new, the lion of Judah is referencing Jesus. And so we have this likeness as a prophecy already here in Genesis. Verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. So it's a fascinating thing. Church sort of tradition will tell you that these first five books were written by Moses way, way back in the day. More modern commentators and understandings, perhaps mostly outside the church, I'm not sure. But it's, it is begun to be told that these books were actually written while they were exiled to Babylon. So in the times of like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezra and Nehemiah and those that it was at that time, you know, we talked about this in a previous episode that that was when these were actually written. But even if that's the case, it still predates Jesus by a decent amount of time. And yet here we have in these in verses nine through 12, a lot of references that are reflected in Christ. So I still find that very fascinating. So there you have that. And then in Genesis 50, the end of the book, Jacob has died. He's embalmed and mourned by both Joseph and Egypt and presumably the other brothers as well. They go through a a very long embalming and mourning process. Take him out to the grave sites that Abraham purchased way back when. And then when they return, the brothers are afraid that Joseph was only being nice to them because their father was still alive. And now that he is dead, he will turn his anger against them. So they come back to him and say, hey, by the way, our father, before he died, his one of his dying wishes was that you would treat us well and forgive us for everything we did to you. And Joseph, when he receives that message, it says he he weeps, he cries. And I think the implication is that it's because they still don't 
believe him, they are still living in condemnation when he has forgiven them. And so he reassures them once again that everything that happened was for God's plan of salvation for both the Egyptians and the Canaanites for his family, that all the things that occurred to him was to put him in a place where he could save countless lives. Then, after all that, Joseph dies. He makes them promise to to carry his bones out of Egypt as well when they leave, which they agree to do. And that's it. The whole book of Genesis. As I said once again, I mean, throughout all these chapters, we got to see a lot of things. We spent a lot more time on it than I thought we were going to. And there are still a lot of things that we skipped over or didn't focus on in order to kind of, you know, keep to a central theme for each episode. So there is so much there. Um, In just these first 50 chapters, there are 929 chapters in the Old Testament, and we have gone through 50 over the past 19 weeks, 19 episodes. So plenty there. Return as often as you like. Um, Hopefully throughout this season, you've seen ways of making the Old Testament relevant to our Christian walk today. Remember the resources that blueletterbible.org exists out there for verses that seem difficult or maybe that seem contradictory that you might be able to go in there and look at explanations of the original Hebrew. Um, There's commentaries there. You can look at, like I said, the original language and see maybe the translation that you're using. The word is a little bit confusing or the word that they decided to translate it as is part of why it's a difficult verse. And you can go in there and see other ways of understanding that word or a series of words that then kind of make it make more sense. Remember also, again, that the Old Testament is primarily history and that God's kingdom is often found between the lines and it must always be compared to the New Testament and the fulfillment in Jesus Christ to be fully realized. As I said, I've had a lot of fun with this. I hope you guys have as well. And so next week, as I said, we'll get a quick introduction into season three, some reasons why we're going down this path and what we hope to achieve out of it. And so there'll be a devotional as part of that as well. It won't just be me talking about personal things. And then after that, launching into topics more fully. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can go to ko-fi, that's ko-fi.com slash Daniel Didek. There's also a link in the show notes where you can go and make a donation. Everything we receive there will go straight back into the podcast, either funding the subscription to the server where the episodes will be stored live forever, or in upgrading equipment. One of the things we want to do eventually is move into an actual soundproof studio, so you'll be able to help by donating through that Ko-Fi page. If you want to support me more generally, you can buy my books. Links are available on my website, danieldidek.com. And as always, non-financial ways to support are to spread the word about this podcast to your friends and followers. If you've read my books, you can leave reviews. And of course, subscribing to the podcast and listening to each episode sure encourages me. And thank you. Until then, keep the faith and keep it old school. Oh,